Hello and welcome back to Aspen Talks Health. I am Dr. Nicola Ciso and today I am joined by Dr. Kimberly Levine. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Kimberly is a, an ER doctor at the Aspen Valley Hospital and today's topic is opioids and how they are addictive and how we can minimize the pain. What are some alternative options for us instead of using opioids? So again, welcome. Thank you. Let's start with why are opioids so addictive? Oh gosh, they're so addictive um, because we have receptors in our brain um, that are opioid receptors naturally occurring and we have natural endorphins, which are natural opioids. So when you introduce a drug that's an opioid, uh, your body starts changing, those receptors change, and you need more and more to get the same effect. And so it, you develop a tolerance and a, kind of a desensitization to it. To get that effect, which is like a euphoric effect, it also helps with pain, but it creates a euphoria, and that's where the addiction goes in. The other part of it, which is really important, is um, the withdrawal symptoms. So you get addicted to them because you want to prevent withdrawal symptoms, which are so uncomfortable. Um, withdrawal symptoms are nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, muscle aches, abdominal cramping, um, anxiety, fast heart rate. It's really uncomfortable. No one likes it. And you need to keep taking opioids, and that's where the addiction sets into. Wow. And you start with just treating pain, and it could just be a sprained ankle. Um, and then... If you're somebody that has risk factors for becoming addicted, um, which you can talk to your doctor about if you're someone who has risk factors for that, um, that's, that's kind of what happens. So it's twofold. It's that your, your brain changes itself a little bit in terms of its receptors, and then you create a dependence, and then the withdrawal symptoms. What are the risk factors? Can you share? The risk factors, yeah. Some of them are um, family history. Um, there's some genetics behind it. Of um, addiction or is it of... Risk factors for addiction, yeah. Uh, some trauma in childhood, um, yeah, and uh, prior use and okay. um, mental health issues. So depression and anxiety really put people at risk factors for addiction. That makes sense. And we know that, we really know that there's a very clear... Um, uh, connection between mental health and substance abuse. So very clear connection between mental health, depression, anxiety, PTSD, other mental health issues, and opioid addiction and overdose. Interesting. And yeah. is it as quick as I've heard? I've heard that just five days, more than a five-day prescription can get you into that possible addiction That's zone. That's true. It really is true. That's quick. Which is wild that it's that fast. Um, and so, yeah, just decreasing that initial first prescription number is kind of key to preventing addiction. Um, even a week, after a week, you're going to have to, you're going to start having some withdrawal symptoms. Wow. Which are really uncomfortable. Yeah. And you'll need a little bit more to get the same effect. Right. Like most drugs. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's how they so work. So how is the pain measured right now in the ER? So we've typically measured pain, and anyone, including yourself, if you've ever had an injury or had any kind of pain, your doctor probably asks you, okay, what's your pain on a scale from zero to 10? Right. Give us 10 being the worst pain you've ever had in your whole life, zero being no pain, where are you right now? Right. And so we really, historically, have been taught as doctors to quantify pain with a number, and that's the numeric scale. Um, and what we have found with that is that it creates the expectation that our goal is a zero. Hmm. And the key 
to a lot of this conversation and key to preventing addiction and preventing opioid use is an expectation that it's, you can't quantify pain, which is so subjective and has so many different components to it, including physical, obviously, which is what we want to treat, um, that you can't quantify it with a number. It's, it's just not fair, kind of. It's, it's kind of like, how does this affect your life? How does it affect your daily activities? How does it affect your functioning, your sleep, what you're able to do, rather than what's your number? Let's try to get it to a zero. And zero is an unreasonable expectation. So um, if we create this expectation that we're trying to get it at a zero, then you're going to keep piling on more and more pain medicine to get there. But if you create the expectation that actually we're not doing... We're not going for a zero. We're, you're going to have pain. You hurt yourself. Let's try to decrease it so it's manageable. And so um, this pain scale is what we've all been using for years and years, what we were taught in medical school. Um, and now what we're trying at the hospital here and across the nation is to change how you quantify pain. And that's going to be kind of key to decreasing uh, addictions. How do you change it? How else can you measure it? How do you measure it? So I mean, we're using, yeah, it, how do you measure it? Um, if you're talking to a mother, for example, who's had, gone through birth, <laughs> I can imagine her 10 is significantly higher than someone who's maybe fallen off a bicycle once. Right, right. <laughs> and everybody kind of scales their 10 differently. Right. It's really interesting because it is so subjective and there's emotional components to it. But, um, but you're right. So what we're using is a new scale. We're trying to shift now in the hospital to a new scale. It's called the Kappa score. Um, it's called, the Kappa is clinically aligned pain assessment. So shifting away from this numeric score into more of a subjective discussion about pain. And if you, um, we have a copy of this, we can put up on the uh, screen for a second just to show everyone. Um, and it's really interesting. So, um, You'll see uh, up here that it's uh, the pain assessment tool, the, new, the numerical rating scale, um, 1 to 3, 4 to 7, 8 to 10. Um, and then how that kind of aligns with this new score, which is at the bottom, the clinically aligned pain assessment. We're just calling it the Kappa score. And so at the hospital and in the community, we're really trying to use this now. We're just introducing it to physicians and trying to use it more in terms of assessing pain. So basically, mild pain would be comfortably managed. So is your pain, you, you're going to have pain, it's not going to be a zero, but is it comfortably managed? Are you okay with it? Are you okay living with it? Can you sleep? Can you do the things that you need to do? Right. Um, moderate pain will be, um, which is typically like a four to seven on the scale, would be toler tolerable with discomfort. So... Yeah, I can deal with it, but I'm really not that comfortable. That's annoying. Like, it might be kind of nice to, like, treat it a little bit better. Okay. Um, and get it down to uh, comfortably managed. And then the most severe is intolerable. So we're using these more subjective terms to try to quantify pain instead of numbers. And mm. so we have this, we create this expectation that, yeah, there's going to be some pain, but let's just get it comfortably managed. That makes perfect <laughs> Which is kind of nice. And it creates more of a conversation about it instead of saying, oh, you're, you're at a seven, let's get it down to a four, or let's get it down to a zero. And, um, and it sets the expectation. Exactly. In the, in the patient's mind, right, that we're not going to go to zero. We're, we're gonna, you're going to have to... Is there an emotional component to having a little bit of pain? Do you think? I think so. And, I mean, I think there's such an emotional component to pain. There's definitely a physical component and then an emotional component. So I think, you know, if you can have the conversation about the anxiety part of the pain and try to treat that as well, um, hmm. 
that it really helps. So I think a lot of which which has driven this opioid epidemic, like there's been this perfect storm in what's driven, so many factors in what's driven it. But one of the things that's driven it is like in the 90s and the 2000s, there, there was this focus on getting pain control down to a zero. You should have zero pain. And as doctors, we're, ethic, we're like morally and ethically driven by the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm and relieve suffering and try to get your pain down to a zero and that we're doing a bad job in treating pain. And the way to do that was with opioids. Yeah. So give more opioids and your pain will eventually get down to a zero. And so that's what we were kind of taught through medical school and residency that that's our job and that's our moral obligation. Right. And what that created was like a huge epidemic of people taking opioids yeah. because we're trying to get your pain to a zero. So if we just change that paradigm, we're not trying to get it to a zero. Let's just get it to comfortably managed. Right. That it really will shift the whole opioid epidemic. Yeah, I wonder on a spiritual level if if your soul that's part of your journey to have this experience uh, I'm not advocating high levels of pain but it, maybe that's what you needed to go through to to learn something there's a lesson in there and by going to zero it's almost like it's taken away is that Taking away the, the, the lesson, the lesson of maybe what of does pain and suffering teach us? Right. Emotionally. Emotionally. You know, physically, you break your femur, like, you're going to have a lot of pain. That's just not, not just an emotional component. We all get that, right. right? So we need pain medicine. But there is an emotional and mental health side to this that right. deserves more conversation and discussion in that doctor-patient relationship. Right. And I think... Um, both sides are um, really responsible for having the conversation. So as a patient, we're really urging people to say, hey, let's talk about pain. Like, where should I be? What, you know, what's my expectation? And what are my alternatives right. to just using yes. opioids? Because typically it's been, hey, here's more opioids. We're going to treat your pain. But the side effects, the addiction and the side effects of opioids were never really addressed, and that's what created the epidemic. I definitely want to get to the, what are the alternatives next, but yep. what are the other side effects? Of opioids? Yeah. Okay, so there's some people have nausea and abdominal kind of cramping from it. Um, the biggest and most dangerous one is respiratory depression, which means that your breathing rate goes down. And oh, when, wow. you know, it's, and most people don't know that, and that's what kills people. That's how people die from an opioid overdose, really? typically. They're not getting that enough it oxygen. sedates you. And that your respiratory rate goes down. So you're getting sedated. You've taken a bunch of opioids or you've taken a bunch of heroin, fentanyl. Um, the other opioids are um, oxycodone, hydrocodone, oxycontin. Um, and if you've taken too much because you're trying to treat your pain or your mental health issue or whatever it is, your addiction, um, your tolerance, you get sedated. When you get sedated, you know, it kind of puts you to sleep your breathing rate goes down and it it affects your central breathing rate. So when your breathing rate goes down, your oxygenation in your blood goes down. Right. And if it gets down to a dangerous level, huh. you won't come back. Wow. And so that's how brain, most people right? die from it. Is that your brain's not getting enough oxygen? So is your that... brain's not getting enough, enough oxygen. Your whole body's your not whole getting blood, enough oxygen. Your cells yeah. Are so... Wow. You know, we, um, we always check oxygen saturation in the, in the ER, in the hospital. 
Right. And at altitude, we're not going to be at 100%. Most people aren't at 100%. We're more like 95, 93 to 97, and that's normal. So when people get sedated and there's respiratory depression from an opiate overdose, um, their breathing rate might go down below 10. We're typically around 15, 12, 15 and a minute. You might go down below 10, even five a minute, five breaths a minute. And you can, you'll see people's oxygenation go down. Yeah. So it might drop from 95 to 85 to 75. Wow. And once you get down into the 40s, people die. And if you're in a hospital, we can give you oxygen and save you. Right. But if you're out in your home, home or yeah. on the street or something, that's really wow. biggest dangers. And then the danger of addiction. You yeah. know, the side effect of addiction is hasn't been such a huge discussion and you know needs to be more of it whenever you get opioids right interesting yep. all right let's get to the alternatives because that's really interesting as well so what are the alternatives to opioids okay so um we kind of look at them between medication and non-medication okay um so in terms of medication i'll start first with that ibuprofen and tylenol are key and it is amazing how well they work okay and they're over the counter and ibuprofen, um, we advocate 400 milligrams, which is two tabs, okay. every six to eight hours. And you don't want to be on that for a long time. Um, there's side effects of that, too. Um, and Tylenol, um, as we all know, you can overdose on Tylenol as well. So you want to use them in the correct dosages. Okay. Um, but starting with that is a great starting point, and it's really effective. And there's other types of, they're called NSAIDs, which is... Um, uh, ibuprofen is one, and so Toradol, um, Naproxen, there's other ones as well, but the, the NSAID category and Tylenol, okay. and you can just buy them over the counter. You don't need a prescription, and it's, um, it's a great place to start. So that, and the other thing that we're starting to use uh, more often is lidocaine patches. So if you have back pain or you know, you've uh, broken a rib or something like that, you can buy a lidocaine patch over the counter. Um, you can just go to, grocery, to go to the pharmacy and put it on. You put it on for 12 hours, take it off for 12 hours. It's really simple. It's something you can do at home. And people get some relief from it. And so using lidocaine is really important. Is that a numbing? Um, yeah, it's like a numbing. And it goes okay. through the skin. The patch, actually, the skin, it absorbs through the skin to the area that hurts. Hurts. Huh. Yeah, and helps to numb it. Excellent. Yeah, lidocaine's a numbing medicine. Okay. Um, Apart from that, there's a lot of other medicines. There's muscle relaxants that actually can really help out with pain significantly. Um, there's, um, and interestingly enough, antidepressant medication for chronic pain can really help a lot because there's that mental health, um, depression, anxiety component to pain, chronic pain. Right. So an antidepressant can help out. Sometimes um, there's also called anticonvulsant medications that can help with pain as well. Um, Migraines, we've seen that help with. Uh, and uh, the other thing to always consider are nerve blocks. There's nerve blocks that anesthesia can perform. Um, That's interesting. And yeah, and it just takes away your pain. Like even for like a rib fracture, you get a nerve block for a day or two. The first couple days of the worst pain right. gets you through it, and then it's just way more manageable when you're not using opioids. So smart. Yeah. Huh. And what's so great, the anesthesia department at the hospital is really making enormous 
uh, kind of cutting edge strides in these nerve blocks postoperatively. So if you get a knee surgery um, or shoulder surgery, there's these new type of nerve blocks that they're doing that are longer acting. So mm. instead of a 24 hour block, which sometimes you go home with, they're lasting up to 72 hours. So oh, wow. three days. So those first three days you're not using, you're not kind of overwhelming your system with opioids and right. potentially getting addicted. You're the nerve block is working during that time right. and it's amazing and they're having amazing success with it. It's just a different longer acting medicine that they inject. Yeah. It's a longer acting bupivacaine and um, they've been doing this kind of since April and having really great success with it postoperatively. Nice. So there's that, that really great option yeah. as well. Yeah. That makes sense. Why not a local anesthesia versus your whole body? going numb. Right. And that's the focus <laughs> right? is like focus locally yeah. on where the pain really is and try to treat that instead of centrally in your brain. Right. Yeah. Oh, that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. Huh. Okay. Any other alternatives that we can work on? Yeah. So non-medicine alternatives, really important. And, um, you know, always talk to your doctor about it, but, um, we all know about rice therapy, which is rest, ice, compression, and elevation. So if you've hurt something, yes, Resting, ice is amazing. It is such an anti-inflammatory. It works so well. Um, compression, which is like an ace wrap or a splint or something. Okay. That's amazing in helping with pain. Huh. Um, and elevation, yeah. which, you know, there's so, it's really kind of downplayed. Elevation is amazing. And it's elevating it above your heart. So if it's your ankle or your wrist or whatever it is, elevate it above your heart. And that just pulls some of the um, swelling down. Yeah. And that in itself decreases pain really well. It's amazing. Because yeah. your skin isn't being stretched out. I mean, is there, is there some benefits to inflammation? I would think that the body's doing it to help you, no? But there's always yeah, the goal I mean, of like reducing the swelling. It's a natural response of the body, but yeah. elevating it and trying to get some of the, the fluid buildup down okay. will help with your pain enormously. Really? And these are really simple things that you can do at home Yeah. that you know, to decrease opioid use, basically. Right. And a lot healthier and better for you. Um, and then the other alternatives, acupuncture, if that works for you, for longer-term yeah. pain, um, massage, chiropractor, all these, like, really reach out and try different things that are non-medicine related to yeah. treat your pain. Good, acupuncture And again, great big call. pitch for mental health. And we all know this valley has a lot of mental health issues, and I know the local... Um, mental health organizations are trying really hard to increase access and really improve services and address that crisis that's going on here. Um, and that link with pain. So really addressing your mental health issues is mm. gonna help with pain. Just seeking counseling, is that for th therapy will help? Seeking counseling, counseling and medication. So yeah. anti-anxiety, anti, um, but really counseling and counseling, dealing with your- Counseling, getting to the cause of the yeah. anxiety, right? Yeah, what's the underlying cause, Right. right? And we all self-medicate, yep. right? It's easy to self-medicate these mental health issues. Yeah, so um, true. And opioids are part of that problem of self-medicating. Wow, interesting. So my idea of pain is always, so if, if let's say you hurt your finger, all you're experiencing is actually some kind of electron, right? Or elect, some, it's an electric current that gets sent to your brain that says, ow, 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 ow. Right. But if you actually just focus on the pain and, it, and, and think about, like, really, what is it? Like, what does an electron feel like? Or, or some electric current? The nerve, yeah. The nerve. Like, what does it actually feel like? You'd be surprised. It, it mitigates it. 
That's my technique for pain anyway. And yeah, there's those type of um, like meditative focusing things that could help in terms of, yeah, yeah. in terms of another type of treatment. Right, sure. breathing. Yeah, yeah, breathing through breathing it. Breathing through it, actually saying, okay, this is, this is happening. Embrace it. Yep. Learn from it. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but, uh, and have an expectation that it's not going to get down to zero. Don't keep yeah. piling things on to try to, you know, medications and everything to try to get to a zero. Just, there's going to be a little bit. Yeah. And chronic pain's a little different, but for acute pain, you know, it's going to pass. It's going to get better. Um, yeah. Do what you can to treat it. And if you need opioids and there's a place for them, we're not saying none. Right. There's just, there's a very specific, important place for opioids in pain management. But the goal is to just really minimize them in a serious way. Good. And your first prescription, research has shown that that very first prescription, the size of it is linked to addiction. Wow. So fascinating. So, um, so what's too much? you know, 40, 50 pills in that first prescription okay. makes people way more likely to be addicted in that very first. So you, you sprain your ankle, your doctor says, here's some opioids, you know, if it's a big prescription greater than 10, okay. your chance of addiction is way higher in the long run than if you just get eight of Interesting. them or six. Okay. And that's all you need if you do all these other things. Right. It's all you're going to really need. And sometimes you don't need any. Okay. And so... Having that conversation of, you know, that first prescription, hey, I really don't want that much. Or, you know, and from the physician side, hey, you know what, eight or ten is going to be enough. And that way, you know, you're going to be less likely to be addicted and you understand what the side effects are and the respiratory depression and all these things. So just educating and having conversations about it. But Good knowledge. that first prescription is really interesting. So hmm. decreasing that number is um, kind of one of the keys to combating the epidemic. Very important information. Thank you. Yeah. So you deal with people in their worst states, like fear, anxiety, pain causes all these seriously stressful moments where people are probably not themselves or definitely not their kindest, I'm sure. How do you and your staff in the R room manage this and, and stay peaceful within? We eat a lot of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We draw that has candy in it, and like you just no. Yeah, I, that's true. But it, you know, you're right. And and um, the ER is a place where people are coming in in severe pain. There's fear. There's um, you know, people are scared. They may not be acting their best, and that's okay. We understand that. Mm. As providers, we get it. We understand it. And I think really good communication in the team and being able to communicate what's going on and support each other is key. Um, and then I think I shared with you this before. I always think about, and this is kind of like with any interaction you have with anybody, but I think about it in the ER a lot because there are very uh, dramatic presentations with people and you really can't take things personally. So don't take it personally. Right. You know, and there's a... I'd mentioned the four, um, they're called the four agreements. Okay. Um, and they're not specific to the ER, but just specific, just something in general in terms of interacting with people. And I think about it in the ER. So one of them, the first one is don't take, don't take anything personally. Right. Second one is don't make assumptions. So don't make any assumptions about someone, you know, are they, how much of their pain is emotional versus physical? You know, it's just their subjective pain is what it is. Right. Um, and really take that straight forward. Um, and then the other two are be impeccable with your word. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is so important. Um, and always do your best. 
and just trying to live by those yeah. in and out of the ER. Um, I think it's important. I love that. Really don't take things personally. And I know we, we were there the other day when somebody approached me um, and it was um, seven years later, a patient who was in a lot of pain and had uh, some, you know, potentially felt like she had some poor behavior, said some things that she wasn't happy about at the time to me. And seven years later, she came back and apologized and kind of explained what was going on in it's her amazing. life and what was going on. And so it just, don't make assumptions. People aren't, and don't take things personally. Yeah, she carried that for to, seven years. Yeah. That she was nasty and she wanted to apologize for it. And I'm so proud of her yeah. for doing that. And it just reminded me, you know, this is not a personal thing. Everyone has their story and why their pain and the things that they're saying. So, you know, it's kind of trying to be easy on yeah. people. You're getting some good practice in the R room, probably. Every day. Just staying, pa <laughs> Just staying patient and, yeah, and total yeah. acceptance. I mean, you know, we all have to de-stress somehow from it, too. And right. as a team, we... You know, we'll de-stress together and vent and that kind of thing, but um, which is human. But, yeah. you know, just always trying to maintain some of those principles. Right, and the communication is key. Even with the patient, right, just even letting them know that they're heard and they, you get it that they're in a lot of pain and you, you hear them. They, a lot of people vent just to be heard, right? Right, right. And then the pain might even mitigate just knowing someone is there to care. Being able to listen, I think, is so important. Yeah. In yeah. all areas of life. Right. You're just in the extreme environment, but yeah. 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 So how, um, we're coming up to the end, but um, I was curious about alcohol and opi opioids. Uh, is, is the, does alcohol heighten the opioid experience? Is it dangerous? Like how, is there a range? Like one is okay, three is you're in danger zone or? Oh gosh, it's different for everyone. It is absolutely dangerous to mix them. Mm. Um, definitely. So alcohol is also a depressant. So it will depress, you know, sedates you. Right. So you mix that with opioids and that combination is more deadly than either of them alone. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so the com combining them is really dangerous. And there's no way to say one's okay if you take two right. opioids. Like there's, we just recommend not Zero. mixing them at all. Yeah. Um, huh. It's really dangerous. Wow. And you mentioned before heroin. Are they on the same level? Heroin o and... O and opioids? So that... heroin is a type of opioid. Okay. Heroin and fentanyl. So these street opioids. Um, and it's so interesting. 70% of heroin users started with prescription opioids. Wow. And so it's cheaper and easier to get. And now that physicians are starting to crack down and decrease opioid prescriptions as a way to combat this epidemic, it's a lot easier to get. And it's wow. highly addictive, as we all know. They're all addictive. Um, and so, yeah, so wow. heroin use has gone up and, um, and uh, overdose deaths from heroin use has quadrupled since 2000 in Colorado and nationally. So it, it's, a, it's a huge epidemic. Wow, I did yeah. not know the that. The numbers are so startling. And 70% start with an opioid prediction. Right, uh, so opioid prescriptions are a gateway into recreational use. I mean, they clearly are. Incredible. And when you get addicted with prescription opioids, again, those are uh, oxycodone, hydrocodone, dilaudid, oxycontin, which is the long-acting one. Um, 
your likelihood of going into heroin use and fentanyl use recreationally is very high. Wow. And it's, it's so dangerous. Yeah. That's, that's, you, th you hear of oxycodone, that's prescribed all the time. Like oxycodone, that's yeah. Totally yeah. typical. And again, we, as we're a community that has a high number of orthopedic injuries and orthopedics here needs right. to prescribe some to help people. Right. And it's a, it's a really effective drug for pain control, right. but it's just really minimizing it, understanding it, yeah. understanding the side effects, the risk of addiction, having that whole conversation and yeah. your goal for pain management which is not a zero, um, right. all of that combined is what we can all do locally to yeah. help ourselves. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kimberly. This oh. has been wonderful. You Thanks so much for letting me share all this. Oh, it's, it's really such important. valuable information. Yeah. And yeah, to know that 10 really should be your max, and that, that's really helpful to know the numbers. And Good for you. Thank you very much yeah. for sharing. Oh, thank you so it. much. Thanks uh, for having me. My pleasure. As Appreciate always, it. you guys, uh, check out AspenTalksHealth.com for more information, and we'll put Kimberly's information as well so you can reach out if need be. All right? Thanks. Thank you so much. Yay.